seen so far in John chapter 6, this great miraculous provision of Christ. We started with the feeding of the 5,000, if you remember that, probably feels like ages ago, but it was just a couple verses ago in John chapter 6, we saw this miraculous provision of Christ for the multitudes. Over 5,000 men and more women and children were provided with miraculous food that was multiplied by our Lord. And if you remember back at the beginning, there's all these great things. Um, there's this miraculous food. They gathered up the leftovers. There's enough to fill 12 baskets. There's an amazing event that happens. And yet the people, the crowds, miss what was really going on. They come, they try to make Jesus their king. They try to force him to the throne so he can defeat the Romans and conquer their enemies. And they've missed the point. And then last week, we looked at this kind of second instance where Jesus miraculously walks on the water, leads the disciples through the sea to safety. And the people, again, sort of figure out this other miracle that he's been able to walk on the water, and yet they miss the point again. And they start asking Jesus, what do we need to do? What work do we need to perform to get this eternal life? What, what do I need to do? Do I need to, what work do I need to perform? And Jesus, again, doesn't point them to this physical miracle, to this physical bread or the physical walking on the water, but he points them to faith. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom the Father has sent. And so we'll see today really just a continuation of that. That at the beginning there's this miraculous feeding and the crowds miss the point. There's a miraculous walking on the water, and the crowds missed the point. And today we're going to see something very similar. That the crowds, again, are going to be focused on the external, on the earthly, and they're going to miss the eternal significance of what's really going on. And we're going to see Jesus very explicitly point to himself as the one that can truly satisfy his people. That there's many other things that these people could pursue. They could pursue his miracles. They could pursue bread. But Jesus this morning is going to point them to himself. And hopefully we see that as we look through God's word. So I'm going to read verses 30 through 40. I'll pray for us and then we'll look at this passage. This is the word of the Lord. So this is they, the crowd, sent to him. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible, inerrant word, that we have great hope this morning, great assurance that we, when we come to your word, when we, when we see you in the scriptures, we have great hope this morning. We have, we have your revelation to us that everything we need for life and godliness you've given us in your word. And I pray this morning that we would see Christ, the bread of life this morning, and that we would eat and drink and feed on him. And that we would have great hope this morning. Whether we are in a time of great prosperity or a time of great poverty and trial, I pray that we would come this morning, see our Savior, and believe in Him and have eternal life. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. There's a phenomenon that happens every year around this time, and I call it the look. And maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. It's the look right after... You've just given your kids all their presents. They've just opened 25 boxes. And, they, and then they give you the look. And the look is, what's next? Okay, where's the next present? Or when are we going to grandma and grandpa's to open more, right? Or maybe if you are in a relationship with someone, each year you say the same thing. Let's not do something big, right? We're just going to do small gifts. But then they give you the small gift and you look at them like, okay, really? Th this small? <laughs> Maybe I'm not the only one that's experienced that. But I call that the look, right? There's always this more. And you don't have to teach your kids that. You don't have to teach your kids to want more. It's just sort of this thing in them that says, where's the next thing? Where's the bigger present? Where's the next toy? And what we're going to see today in our passage is this is very similar with this crowd that we see following Jesus. That they want more. They want more, and Jesus is gonna give them the most that he could ever give them, and it's still not enough for them. So we're gonna look at three things today. We're gonna to look at, if you wanna follow along on your outline there, we're gonna see this sign-seeking crowd, this crowd that's only following Jesus for what they can get from him, this sign-seeking crowd. Then we're gonna look in verses 32 through 34, we're going to see this sun that's sent from heaven, the heaven-sent sun, and then finally in verses 35 through 40, we're going to see this soul-satisfying bread of Christ. So the sign-seeking crowd, the heaven-sent sun, and the soul-satisfying bread. So if we look with me at verse 30 and 31, we see something amazing. This crowd who has just been miraculously fed with five loaves and two fish, says this to our Lord. 
What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What sign do you do that we may see and believe? This is the same crowd. This is not a different crowd. This is not a different chapter. It's the same people that have been fed with five loaves and two fish, and they look at our Lord and they say, what are you going to do for us? I mean, what, what pride, what arrogance, but what blindness. What blindness that these people have that they are now asking our Savior to do another sign. And this is what John will refer to as sign-seeking. And these people have now made themselves sort of the judges, the arbiters of truth, the ones that are sort of the audiences of Jesus' entertainment. What are you going to do for us next? What, what trick can you do? What sign can you do? What work are you going to do for us? And really what they're sort of saying here is, we really want to believe you, Jesus. We really want to follow after you, but we just haven't seen enough. We haven't seen enough from you. What more can you do? And this is the nature of sign-seeking. This is the nature of these people that can never have enough. More, more, more. There's always more that they want. This is the nature of sign-seeking. And if we go back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 12, the Pharisees are like this as well. They ask Jesus, can you perform another sign? Can you do another miracle? Can you do something else? And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And the only sign that will be given to you is the sign of Jonah. Which is a very interesting phrase. I wish I had more time to talk about that. But what he's saying is, the only sign that you're going to get is my three-day death and my resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale and was vomited out. <laughs> in the same way, the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth and will be raised again to new life. And as we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And so we can see parallels in both of these, both of these scripture passages, but there's something about the message of Christ and the message of the cross, namely, that, that goes against what these sign seekers are after. They are demanding more, just as the people in the wilderness, right? And they, that's where they go. They go to the people in the wilderness. They try to quote scripture to Jesus, try to trick him up and try to get him to do something, which is funny. He's, they say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and they quote uh, Nehemiah 9, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so what they're sort of saying here is, well, the people in the wilderness, they had bread for 40 years. Yeah, you did a miracle one time. But where's the rest of it? Where's the rest of it? Aren't you going to do more? And this should show us a couple things. It shows us how much they're demanding, how much they're wanting more and more that's not enough. But secondarily, we see that we must be careful as we handle Scripture, right? <laughs> These people are trying to use the Word of God to trip up Jesus or to try to compel Him to do something. And honestly, it should remind us of the account of Jesus when he's fasting in the wilderness. Who comes to him and uses scripture to try to tempt him? Satan. Satan comes to him and says, throw yourself off the temple. And Jesus quotes scripture back to him and says, you shall not test the Lord your God. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days from food and water. And he says, there's a stone there. Turn it into bread. And what does Jesus say? 
Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see here the crowds, they're seeking after these signs. They want more from God, from the Savior, but they won't get what they're looking for. And we see Jesus confront this in verses 32 through 34. So this brings us to our second point, the heaven-sent Son. Jesus here in verse, verse 32 says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus' way of getting their attention. They are off on a tangent. They're quoting scripture at him. They're trying to get him to do another miracle. And he's saying, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Now, there was a thinking in that time and day that Moses, by his merits, by his, by his holiness, that he somehow merited this heavenly manna from heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is that it wasn't Moses, it wasn't his merit, it wasn't his good works that got you manna from heaven in the Old Testament, but it was ultimately my Father that gave you the bread from heaven. But he's actually saying more than that. He's not just saying, my Father gave you the manna in the wilderness, what does he say at the end of the verse? But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. So Jesus is saying something else. He's contrasting the bread in the wilderness and the, bread, the true bread that comes from heaven. So what does this word true mean here? What is Jesus saying? Is he saying the bread in the wilderness was fake? It was a mirage? It was, it was not real? No, he's saying that there's a difference between the bread that the people in the Old Testament had rained down from heaven on them for 40 years. There's a difference between that and the bread that I'm going to give. And we can say this is the difference between the type and the anti-type. Or the difference between the shadow in the Old Testament and the substance in the New. Or maybe a way to think about it is the, what was happening in the Old Testament when God rained down manna from heaven, it was a picture but it wasn't the substance. It wasn't the point. It was a picture of what God would do. And I think this analogy is helpful. Say you have a loved one that's gone away for a long time. You might have a picture of them that shows you what they look like. But when they come back, you don't need the picture anymore. The picture is just a 2D image of that person. When the person comes in 3D in full color, you don't need the picture anymore. And what was happening here is that the people were just wanting the picture. They wanted the bread from heaven, this miraculous food, but they weren't seeing that the food was meant to point them to their need for Christ. And so we can say that what Jesus here is pointing his people to is this one that's going to come down from heaven, not the visible heavens, right? In scripture, sometimes the, the sky is referred to as the heavens. But what Jesus is saying is this bread is not going to come from the physical sky, but from, not from heaven, the visible heavens, but from the invisible heavens, namely the Son of God who comes from heaven itself. And so this bread that Jesus is talking about, this true bread, is true. Why is it true? Because it's what the picture in the Old Testament pointed to. It's from the true heavens, not just the visible not just a visible sky. And this bread has a unique quality that it is able to give life to all peoples. 
all tribes, all tongues, all nations, not just the Jews. That these people would have seen this picture in the Old Testament and they would have said, you know, God gave them bread from heaven and it was just the people, just the people of Israel, just the Jews. But Jesus here is saying he gives life to the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, not just the Jews. And so we see that Jesus is pointing to this bread from heaven, and they still don't get it. <laughs> they still don't get it. And in verse 34, even though it sounds like they're starting to understand, we'll see that they do not. They say, sir, give us this bread always. But Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. And this brings us to our third and final point, the soul-satisfying bread. That these people, much like the woman at the well, they are stuck on the earthly things. Jesus said, I have living water that I'm going to give to you. And she says, can I get that water? That way I don't have to come back to this well. And he says, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about myself. And the same thing is happening here. They say, sir, give us this bread. It almost sounds like Willy Wonka, everlasting gobstopper. Like, give us this bread always. We want bread that won't run out. We want bread that's not going to perish, that's not going to run out. Give us that bread. And he says to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am the substance. I am the reality. I am the fulfillment. He's saying the bread that you want is going to perish. It's going to leave you hungry and thirsty. The bread that you want is going to have effects. It's going to fill your belly for a moment, but its effects are temporary. Just like many of us experienced the other day, right? <laughs> Maybe you had a big turkey and a big piece of pumpkin pie, and you ate that. You ate that food, and it satisfied you, but it was temporary. It wasn't Two hours later, you probably went back for a second piece of pie, or you went back for more food, right? It didn't, it didn't have lasting effects. And Jesus is telling them that this bread that you want, that you think you want, is going to leave you hungry and thirsty. It's going to perish. It's going to run out. But the bread that I'm going to give you will not run out. The bread I'm going to give you is not going to leave you hungry. It's not going to leave you thirsty. It's going to endure. It's going to satisfy. It's not going to have effects that run out. It's going to bring life. And so this, when he says, I'm the bread of life, the implication is that there's death somewhere. <laughs> that there's death somewhere. That there's death and darkness. That us in our natural state don't have life. We have life in a sense. We have human life. We breathe. We have blood flowing through our veins. But we do not have spiritual life by nature of our birth. And so Jesus is saying here, I'm the bread of life. I can give spiritual food that will not make you hungry and not make you thirsty. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. I'm the bread that will not that will not leave you hungering and thirsting. I'm the bread that is going to endure to eternal life. It's almost like Jesus is crying out to them. You've seen this miracle, but it's meant to point you to me. I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, won't hunger and won't thirst. But we see something very troubling in verse 36. He says to them, you've seen me 
and yet you don't believe. You've seen me, and yet you don't believe. These people had eaten the food that Jesus multiplied. They'd seen the incarnate Son of God. They maybe even touched him as he walked by, and yet they won't believe. And yet they won't believe. And so we have to ask ourselves, was this mission of the heaven-sent Son, the one that came down from heaven, was it a failure? Was it a failure? They're not believing in Him. He's come down from heaven. They're not believing Him. Was the heaven-sent Son, was He sent in vain? Was it just sort of, was the, was the Father sending the Son just sort of hoping that people would believe in Him? Hoping that those that hear the message would come, but not really knowing? And this, can, this, this causes us to ask some difficult questions, some hard questions. And the, maybe the most difficult one is, why do some believe and come to Christ and some don't? Why do some people believe in Christ and have salvation and others don't? And maybe even more pointedly, if these people won't come, the people that have seen the risen Lord, eaten the miraculous food that he multiplied, if they won't come, who will? If they won't come, who will? And if it's based on their merits or their conditions or, you know, how much light they've been exposed to. I mean, these people had seen everything. Surely these crowds would be at the top of the list for the people that we would think that would believe in Jesus. And he's saying, you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. And then we see these words in verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So Jesus here is saying something very profound. And I think when we put verse 35 and verse 37 next to each other, I think we sort of see a clearer picture of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is sort of showing them the heavenly perspective of what's going on in this situation. That there's people that are seeing Christ with physical eyes, but they're not seeing him with spiritual eyes. Why is that? Because verse 35 says, anyone who comes, anyone who believes, will have eternal life. It's sort of this earthly picture that if someone comes to the Lord, if someone comes to Christ, they have eternal life. But Jesus in verse 37 is showing them that it is those that truly come are only those that the Father has given to the Son. That there's a divine certainty, a divine assurance to this mission of the Son. That the Son of God was sent into the world on this divine mission, as we read at our Christmas Eve service, to save his people from their sins. And it's not just a, a possibility that God's going to save people, it's a certainty. God is going to save his people from their sins. And so we see here that Christ is grounding his assurance that he's going to save his people from their sins in the giving of the Father to the Son. And he says in verse 39, This is the will of my Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Lose nothing that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. And here I think we see something that we often miss in the gospel. 
that many of us are familiar with the importance of Christ's life and death and resurrection for us, right? We talk about that every week. Christ was sent into the world to live the perfect life, to die the death that we deserve, and to raise again to new life. But here we see a beautiful picture of another reason why the Son was sent into the world. As we remember in this incarnation, this time of Christmas, He was sent to do something else. And we see that in verse 39. That the will of the Father for the Son is not only His perfect life, death, and resurrection, but it is His sovereign power to save His people, preserve them to the end, and raise them up on the last day. That the Son of God is not just going to live the perfect life, die the death that we deserve, raise up on, um, on the day of resurrection, but He actually has the power to save His people, to effectually call them to Himself, to preserve them to the end. No one's going to snatch them out of His hands. Nothing's going to be lost. And raise them up on the last day in resurrection life. And so we can say that the Son, in His work of mediation, is not only going to save His people, but He's going to preserve them to the end and raise them up on the last day. And this should sound very similar to Romans 8 where it says, those whom the Father predestined, the Son called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also sanctified, those whom He sanctified, He also glorified. And we see a very similar thing here, that the Son is going to save His people, He's going to preserve them to the end, and He's going to raise them up on the last day. And so we can say it like this, all that the Father gives will come to the Son. All that come to the Son will believe in the Son. All that believe will not be cast out. All that look on the Son will have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. So it's almost like a golden chain of John chapter 6. That there's this, there's this promise, there's this assurance, there's this certainty to God's plan of salvation. That no one's going to mess it up. No one's going to step into God's plan and thwart it. That God is going to accomplish his will, and he's going to save his people and raise them up on the last day. And so as we kind of close this morning, as we think about how to think about this passage, how to respond to this passage, it can be very difficult, if we're honest. It can be hard to understand what is going on here. What is, what is Jesus saying? And the response of many is sometimes anger and frustration at this passage. Some will create elaborate systems to sort of get around the clear teaching of Scripture, or some people will just ignore what we've read this morning and just say, it doesn't matter. And that's sort of why we go verse by verse through the Scriptures, because we have to come across passages like this, and we have to try to understand what it means and what is the point of Jesus' words here in John chapter 6. And I think the mistake that we can easily make here is to look at ourselves. We look inward, we look and say, we ask these questions like, am I given to the Father? Am I one of those ones that was given to the Son by the Father? Or as he'll say later on, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And instead of looking inward at ourselves and asking that, this morning we must look outward to Christ. We must look outward to Christ and see what I think Jesus is saying here 
or one of the things that he's saying here is that this work of salvation by the triune God is essential. That all the persons of the triune God are at work in our salvation. The Father sends the Son to accomplish redemption and to give a people to the Son. The Son comes and accomplishes that redemption in His life and His death and His resurrection. And the Spirit comes and is poured out on the day of Pentecost, applies the work of redemption to God's people, sanctifies them, preserves them to the end, and by the power of the Spirit, raises them on the last day. And this is the work of the triune God. Nobody's going to stop it. Nobody's going to get in the way. This is the golden chain. Nobody's going to fall out. All that the Father gives will come to the Son, will believe, and will be raised on the last day. And so finally, this passage, instead of giving us great fear, should give us great assurance. It should give us great assurance for those that have put their faith in Christ. That none of us who have true faith in Christ will fall away. We will be preserved to the end. Some refer to this as the perseverance of the saints. That all those that believe in Christ, all those that look to Him by faith, will not be cast out, but will be raised on the last day. And you might say to me, Kendall, you don't know me. You don't know what sins I've committed. You don't know what I've done in my life. Yeah, I might feel saved today, but tomorrow I don't. <laughs> I have sin in my life. I have doubts. I have anxieties. You don't know me. And I would say, I have those same doubts, sins, and anxieties. We all do. <laughs> we all struggle. For most of my life, early on in my years, I struggled with anxiety about the last day. Or that the Lord would come back when I was in the middle of a grievous sin, right? And that somehow God would not be able to save me because I was in this deep sin. And what I think these verses are helping us to see is that there is a sovereign preserving and keeping of God's people. That nothing is going to thwart His plan. No one's going to be lost. No one's going to be cast out. No one can snatch them out of his hands as we read this morning. And no one is, as that passage says, no one is able to snatch them out of his hands. That means not even you can snatch yourself out of God's hands. We have great assurance this morning that the sheep of God hear his voice. They hear the good shepherd and they come to him and no one is able to snatch them. He is the bread of life. He sustains his people. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed to cleanse the stains of his people. So they have full assurance that every sin is paid for. There's not a sin that's going to come up at the end that he's going to be surprised by. He is covered and atoned for all the sins of his people. And so we get a picture at the end of the scriptures that should, I, I hope, give us great confidence that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And we get this picture in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. It says this. This is John speaking. After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, shouting out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And John asked this, Who are these that are clothed in white robes, and where they come from? And the angel says, They are those that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They shall not hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <laughs> that we have great assurance that God is going to bring his people, preserve them to the end, satisfy their hungers and their thirst, their deep spiritual longings, he will satisfy, and it is only those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb that have them made white. And so as we'll sing in a minute, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning just in awe of you, that you would come to us, a people who are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that you would present to us the bread of life. May we come this morning, may we believe this morning, may we look to Christ and feed on Him, knowing that all those that the Father has given to the Son will come, will believe, will be preserved to the end, and will be raised up on the last day. That this life and the, and the life that we live on this earth is not the end. That we look forward to the resurrection, the last day when all will be made new, all tears will be wiped away, There'll be no mourning, no crying, but we will dwell with you forever in eternity. May we feast on Christ this morning with the eyes of faith, and may we be satisfied knowing that all of our hopes and longings are satisfied in Christ. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.